Today's episode is brought to you by Geico. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work, but you know, what's easy bundling policies with Geico. Geico makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's insurance or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing too, because you already have so much to do around the house. Go to Geico.com, get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. And we thank them for sponsoring today's podcast. I'm back to remind you this week of all the exclusive content you can find right now at adfreeshows.com. Not only are all your favorite wrestling podcasts early and ad-free, but there's so much bonus content in the archives that you could literally spend weeks, hell, months, catching up on all the content that you can't find anywhere else. Listen up. Adfreeshows.com also has all the past exclusive StarCast interviews available to you, including AEW's own CM Punk and his memorable interview with PW Insider Mike Johnson from his hometown in Chicago in 2019. I'm sure you don't miss the politics or fighting or trying to get your way or making others understand your vision, but do you miss the performance of it? Do you miss getting in the ring? Do you miss calling spots? Do you miss performing and having people react the way that they did when you walked out on stage today? That aspect of it, is there any part of you that still misses it or have you moved on? Sign up now and you can hear Punk's response to this and so many other great questions as we all enjoy this amazing roller coaster ride in wrestling. There's never been a better complimentary piece to your wrestling fandom than becoming a member at adfreeshows.com right now. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the Kurt Angle Show. Did you know that there's an official store for the podcast? It's called boxagimmicks.com. It's where you can find shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, and more, all related to the Kurt Angle Show. It is one of the best ways to support the podcast. So check out boxagimmicks.com. And thank you for listening to the Kurt Angle Show. Hey, before we get going, first of all, I want to thank you guys for listening to the show. We greatly appreciate all of your support. It means a lot to both me and my co-host here. We're working hard to entertain you every single week. But behind the scenes, I'm working hard on something else I want to share with you. Check out this five-star review from my man, John K up in Raleigh, North Kakalaki. He wrote, I've been a fan of Conrad's podcast for several years, given how home values have skyrocketed in our area in the last 12 months. I wanted to see if a refi that could consolidate our credit card debt was worth exploring. Diane, Brandy, and Bill were an absolute pleasure to work with. This was by far the smoothest mortgage process and fastest closing out of the four I've been through. Thanks to First Family, we were able to refinance to a lower rate and pay off all of our credit card debt. This will save us north of $800 a month. I cannot stress how huge that is for my wife and our two kids. This is the fresh start we've needed. I can't thank the team enough and will recommend First Family to all of my family and friends. Thanks. No, thank you, John. I greatly appreciate your support and thank you for leaving me that review over at ConradReviews.com. Don't take my word for it, guys. We make saving money fast and easy. See for yourself what people are saying at conradreviews.com. But then give us a call. Find out how much money you can save for free at 888-425-0105. Yes, that's a toll-free call. Or maybe if you think you have a unique situation, just shoot me an email. Conrad at savewithconrad.com. Or better yet, get a quick quote right now. Find out how much money you can save for free. John saved more than 800 bucks a month. What's your number? How much can you save? Find out at savewithconrad.com. 
NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention we're licensed in more than 40 states? And with rates as low as they are right now, it's not a matter of if we can save you money. It's a matter of how much. Your home is probably worth more than ever before. And this is a once in a lifetime opportunity to use that equity to change your life. Get out of debt faster with cheaper monthly payments and keep more of your own money at SaveWithConrad.com. That's SaveWithConrad.com. Will he want a gold medal with a broken freaking neck? He's a real athlete, so give him your respect. He's got intensity, integrity, intelligence too. Oh, it's true, it's damn true. So if he ever finds you and you're chanting you suck, then he'll douse you in dairy with his big milk truck. And with one eagle slam, he'll lay you out on the floor. So listen up, it's time to go. Hey, this is Kurt Angle, and welcome to the Kurt Angle Show. On today's show, I promise you won't be bored because we have an MMA and wrestling legend, and his name is Randy Couture. But first, let me introduce to you my co-host, Conrad Thompson. How are you doing today, Conrad? Man, I'm excited. Here we are in the presence of MMA royalty, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Randy Couture. I can't believe this is real. Thank you for the time today, sir. Thank you guys. Thanks for having me on. Randy, how you doing, man? Everything okay? Doing great. Everything's good. Busy as heck. Feel like the floodgates February. What are you doing now, Randy? Uh, I'm doing some commentating for the Professional Fighters League. That's what I'm doing right now here in South Florida. We have the last of our semifinal fights for our our, uh, postseason matches uh, tonight in the light heavyweight division and and the featherweight division. And then we have our championship fight uh, coming up October 27th, again, here in South Florida. So excited. Uh, This is our third season with with the PFL, Professional Fighters League. They took MMA and they put it into a true sports format with a regular season, a postseason, and a championship every year. Oh, that's awesome. Really been fun to be involved. Very innovative, man. That's great. Is it all down in Florida? Uh, we did all of our regular season fights up up at Ocean's Resort and Casino in Atlantic City. Okay. Um, this season, all the postseason playoff fights have been down here at the at the Hollywood Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, and our championship will be down here in Florida as well. Oh, that's great! I'm glad you're doing well and that you're part of that. That's awesome. Hey, yeah, uh, cool. we're going to get started, man. Randy, the career you've had is unlike no other. In my research, there's a story that while you were in the army, your application ended up in the Greco-Roman tryouts instead of the freestyle wrestling tryouts. And even though you had no experience in Greco-Roman, you ended up making the team anyway. Is that true? Yeah, that's actually true. I, uh, you know, my first duty station in the army at 19 years old was West Germany. And showing my age, I said West Germany. <laughs> uh, Back a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I thought wrestling was over for me. You know, I was a one-time state champ out of, out of high school in Washington, outside of Seattle, and didn't really get a lot of love from the college coaches. No scholarship offers or anything like that. I had a family on the way, so I ended up joining the service to support that family. Little did I know at that time in the peak of the Cold War, there were five million soldiers stationed in Central Europe. They had huge sports sports programs, and one of them was wrestling. So I ended up back on a wrestling mat, ended up winning a you know a fifth core championship. That's where 
You know, I signed up for the freestyle and they accidentally put me on the Greco bracket <laughs> as well. Started calling my name when I just finished a freestyle match. And I'm like, the heck, I just got off the mat. And they said, well, you're on the Greco bracket. Are you going to wrestle or not? And I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> I ended up winning the tournament, getting a shot at trying out for the All-Army Wrestling Team. And, you know, the rest is history. I ended up making the Army team, winning a couple of inter-service championships. The inter-service wrestling championship in Greco-Roman wrestling is a qualifier for the Olympics, for the Olympic trial process. And so I ended up qualifying for the trials in Greco uh, and was an alternate on the 88 Olympic team as a soldier. Um, Now all these college coaches are like, who the hell is this kid? Where did he come from? (laughs) And the phone started ringing which ultimately led me to uh, Oklahoma state. And then that's, you know, honestly where we cross paths. You were at Clarion. I was at Oklahoma state. You were a heavyweight. I was a 190 pounder. We were on the East West all-star team together and, and a few other uh, of those uh, tournaments and endeavors where we were, we, we crossed paths and uh, yes, we yeah, did. the good old never days. wrestled though. No, no I, I want to explain to everybody. If you're not a wrestler, you don't know how difficult it is to adapt from freestyle to Greco-Roman and to actually make the team. Did that, did that change your mind from going freestyle to going Greco-Roman full-time after college? Well, there was a much, the more of an emphasis, yeah, much more of an, of an emphasis on Greco in the services. Okay. Because most of us got out of high school and went right into the service. We didn't do the collegiate thing, at least not yet. And, uh, so we didn't get that high level coaching in, in freestyle, hadn't wrestled at the high level in, in college wrestling either. And it was easier for us to focus on Greco because not a lot of guys in the U.S. like Greco. Right. And, uh, I mean, that's the truth. And uh, and so you, you see a lot of our top guys in Greco come out of one, one service or another. The Marine Corps had a very, very strong team for a long time. You probably may have wrestled Greg Gibson from the Marine Corps team. Yes, they did. The NCAA. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the emphasis for our service members a lot of times, not that they're not good at freestyle, they are, but they tend to focus and flourish in the Greco world. They have a lot more success in Greco. I, I noticed that when I was wrestling, that uh, most of the yeah. Army guys were greco Rome. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about emphasis, mindset, the coaches – you know, at the end of the day, they want results. They want guys to, to place in, in the rankings and, and, and be, you know, national champions. And it, and it was a, a little bit easier path for, for those guys in the service that hadn't been to college and hadn't had a high level of freestyle and collegiate coaching to, to focus on Greco and get there. Right. Randy, you were a four-time All-American in Oklahoma State and a runner-up for the NCAA title to Mark Kerr, another MMA name at 190 pounds. Do you think your experience gave you an advantage at the collegiate level? I think rolling into Oklahoma State at 25 years old, I was very focused. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Unlike a lot of 18, 19-year-old kids coming out of high school that, that roll into college they want to party. They want to carry on. They, 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 you know, there are a lot of distractions. Let's just put it that way. And, uh, and I didn't have any of those distractions. I, I was very focused. Uh, I had a family. I had two kids uh, when I rolled into Oklahoma State. And, and, and that eliminated a lot of the extraneous stuff that, that sometimes trips up younger kids and keeps them from achieving, you know, what their goals were and what they set out to do. So 
I definitely felt like that was an advantage for me. I was a late bloomer all the way up the line. And that was no exception. I think the six years I spent in the army allowed me to mature, really kind of figure out who I was. I think on the army wrestling team, I developed the confidence that I could compete on that international stage at a, a much higher level than, than I believed when I came out of high school as a one-time state champ. So I think, you know, it worked out the way it was supposed to work out. I, I did it all backwards, but it seemed to turn out just fine. Well, I, I do want to tell Conrad, you know how difficult it is to go from Greco-Roman to collegiate wrestling. That That is a big ap- adaption. You really have to adapt. Uh, it's completely different. It's more more like freestyle than it is Greco-Roman, but the yeah. spring's different. Everything is so different. So I don't think you had much of an advantage uh, going, you know, to the army first before you came to college. Um, I think that the odds were probably stacked against you because you didn't wrestle collegiate wrestling up until then. Yeah, I, I think there, there's some truth in that for sure. I think the biggest advantage I had was maturity and mindset. I'd already competed in an Olympic trial, even though I'd never been to college and wrestled at the, at the higher level in folk style and college style. So I, I think I, you know, I had a confidence and a belief in myself after making, you know, being an alternate on that 88 team to make the adjustments. I also had great partners and great coaches at Oklahoma state. Bruce Burnett was an amazing guy. Not the best. First, first week of practice, he handed me a jump rope. He said, man, you wrestle like your feet are in cement. And I'm sure that was like Greco. So you need to skip this rope at the end of practice every single day. And so I started getting that footwork and, and getting a little lighter on my feet, then planting them in the cement to, you know, say, come on. <laughs> I, I, you know, I had to learn and I still made a living getting that two on one or getting that underhook in collegiate style, which came directly from my Greco experience, but I was able to make it work and make the adaptations I needed to make to be successful at the college level. Well, speaking of college, did you know I was almost your college teammate? Oh, really? Yes. Oklahoma state offered me a full scholarship at heavyweight before they offered Jay Rogers. Ah. And Jay ended up going there. And every once in a while, I think about what happened to him. If that would have happened to me, if I would have went, you want to tell the story real quickly about Jay? What a tragic story. Uh, You know, he was a blue chip kid out of Washington state battleground. I believe he wrestled at battleground high school in the Southern part of Washington state. Uh, One of the junior nationals was literally on fire coming out of high school, got the offer to go to Oklahoma state, red shirted his freshman year. They were out at, at, at tumbleweeds, which is a big, country and western bar they were coming out after the the bar was closing and he got hit by a car in the parking lot uh walking to his vehicle broke both of his legs pretty severely and and frankly by the time i was uh uh, i think it was my junior year he had kind of gotten himself back up on the mat training on a regular basis and gotten himself back in wrestling shape but and that was a long time and a pretty tragic accident. He just wasn't the same guy. Um, if I had a regret in college, I ended up having to wrestle him off my junior year in, in the orange and black duels for the, the spot at 190. I got a two-on-one and I foot swept him right to his back and, and had him on his back. And Coach Chesbro was whistling. And, of course, with my head head you know, headgear on and the crowd roaring. I, I didn't know he was wrestling at me. He, he was kind of getting, trying to get my attention to let him off his back and not pin him because oh, it would have been disheartening 
for a guy who had really had a pretty rough road. Yeah. I didn't hear any of that. I ended up, you know, it's for the spot on the team. So you, you do what you do. And I, and I pinned him and oh, Randy. <laughs> afterwards, uh, you know, I, I kind of wish I'd have heard coaches whistle and, and, yeah. and, and been paying attention a little more to what was going on there. I think anybody would regret that. <laughs> Sorry to hear that, Randy. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jay was a great guy. I mean, he was a great workout partner. He really was very diligent in getting himself back healthy, back out on that mat and able to lace up those shoes. So, yeah, I, I would have never set out to, to kind of steal that, that away from him in that moment. I certainly wasn't going to let him beat me, but <laughs> I didn't really need to pin him and kind of add poor salt on, on the wound there. A little bit. Yes. <laughs> Randy, I saw in my research that you were an alternate. You mentioned it for the Olympic team in 88, but you also were an alternate in 92. And even in 96, when Kurt won the gold medal, I didn't know that until I started doing some research here. What can you tell us about those 92 and 96 experiences? Well, you know, I think again, you have to stay focused and recognize that everything happens for a reason, have a little faith that things are going to turn out the way they're supposed to turn out. In 92 and 96, I was the number one guy in my weight class at 90 kilos. And then later in 96 at 97 kilos um, for, for the Olympic trials. I I'd won the nationals, been the outstanding wrestler a couple of times, beat world and, and Olympic medalists in a lot of class A tournaments. And, and by many people's estimation, I was the guy that they expected to make those teams and win medals. I managed to come up short in the, fi- in the final trials and, and Kurt can tell you that the trial process to make the team is pretty long and pretty grueling. They've adapted it and slimmed it down a little bit in recent years, but it was a grind. You, you wrestled a lot of matches to get to that final match and, and be able to make the team. Um, you know, I managed to come up short, even as the number one guy in, in both 92 and 96 was the first alternate. Uh, you know, in 92, uh, I believe it was Mike Foy that went in my place. And, and in 96, it was Derek Waldrop, one of my old teammates from the army who, who beat Mike Foy in the final match uh, to make that team in 96. So, you know, I, I think those, those losses, those setbacks, that adversity made me hungry, made, I still had a fire, something to prove and, and wanted to continue to go out there and compete. I think if I'd have won a medal in any either of those Olympics, I would probably be a college coach somewhere right now and would have never wandered into a cage and, and into MMA. And I would have missed out on a lot, honestly. So things worked out. Well, speaking of MMA, you debut in the UFC with only three weeks notice to be part of a heavyweight tournament. You actually debuted against a former pro wrestler, Tony Holm, known as Ludwig Borga. Yeah. I weighed you by a hundred pounds. What was your experience in MMA at the time? Did you have any hesitation I, on getting in the octagon? Yeah, I had no experience. I had never been <laughs> one of those kids that was in a lot of fights or any of that stuff. I, I had, uh, I always wanted to box. My mom teases me about this to this day, because when I was younger in junior high, there was the Linwood Elks boxing club. And we had a young man named Robert Shannon, who I knew from the wrestling world that, that made the 84 Olympic team out of that boxing club in Seattle. Okay. And, and he wrestled at Briar, which was a neighboring junior high school. Um, you know, I, I knew him through, from the wrestling world coming up and I really wanted to box, but my mom forbid me. 
She's like, no, you can play football, but you are not boxing. There's no way. And I was sneaking away to go to some training and, and do some boxing, but she found out about it, put the lockdown on that. So now she, she laughs. She's like, I should have just let you box then. You would have got it out of your system. I know. She ended up having a, a huge MMA career. Yeah. All right, folks, let's run a timeout right now to talk about our friends at Chirp. Chirp is a brand dedicated to helping the world feel good so they can do more of the stuff they love. In other words, Chirp is all about feel good, do more. To do this, Chirp creates simple, innovative, and effective pain relief and prevention solutions. Chirp started with a revolutionary wheel for back pain, but they really are just getting started. I got to tell you, our experience with Chirp here at the Thompson household has been huge. Uh, Mrs. Thompson hurt her back several years ago, and now whenever she maybe overdoes it at the gym or comes home bragging about a PR, I know what's going to happen later that night. She's going to be in the floor rolling around with Chirp. Chirp is all about helping people feel good and do more, and this back pain is preventing millions of people from feeling their best. When they don't feel their best, they're limited at what they can do, and Chirp can fix that. With Chirp's patent-pending spinal canal and three different pressure options to choose from, Chirp will help your back feel better so you can be back to doing what you love in no time. The key features that make this product stand out are that there's three different pressure sizes, gentle, medium, and deep. Spinal canal to comfort your spine as our wheel gives your back a unique four-way stretch. Each wheel can hold up to 500 pounds, and they can be nested together for easy travel to take with you wherever you go. Visit GoChirp.com and enter the promo code ANGLE to save 10% off site-wide. That's GoChirp.com, and the promo code is ANGLE to save 10% off site-wide. That's GoChirp.com, and be sure to use the promo code ANGLE to save yourself some cash. Get 10% off at GoChirp.com with the promo code ANGLE. But, uh, you know, again, things worked out. Um, I ended up in 97 seeing the sport and, and wanting to try it. Uh, I saw other wrestlers like like Mark Coleman and Don Fry, Dan Severn, all competing, who were guys I, I was familiar with, either teammates with or competed against in, in the sport of wrestling. And so I was immediately intrigued with MMA. Back then it was a little different. You filled out an application, said, oh, I've done this, I've done that. None of it verifiable. I mean, you could verify wrestling credentials, but most of those guys, are like, oh, I've had 300 pit fights. What the hell is a pit fight? Nobody knows what a pit fight is. So uh, it was you know, a faction. Yeah. It was the Wild Wild West. It was a freak show back then. There it were was. Rules, I, I'm not going to lie to you, Randy. I liked it a lot better. I really <laughs> did. I love the primitive uh, feeling. Yeah, it, it was a different animal back then for sure. And I think, you know, there was no marketing. All those people in those in the crowd back then were given tickets to be there to put butts in seats. No, nobody knew who was on that fight card or weren't rooting for anybody. They wanted to see a fight. Yeah, literally, it was a tractor pull crowd. It was a whole different animal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, uh, you know, I managed to get in um, on on short notice. You know, they had a guy break his hand drop out of the tournament they needed to fill the spot and in three weeks they were having trouble finding somebody to step on that up, up in that short of notice i was wrestling for the national team getting ready to go to uh puerto rico to represent the u.s in the pan am championships so i was in shape uh they called me up said hey you're on our alternate list you still want to fight it's in three weeks in augusta georgia i just happened to be going through atlantic atlanta 
to get to Puerto Rico. So on my way back from, from the Pan Ams, I got out in, in Atlanta, did five days of training in Atlanta oh and rolled into Augusta, Georgia for, for my very first UFC tournament, UFC 13. <laughs> and I fought twice that night. I fought Tony Halliman in my first match. And then I advanced and I beat him in about 45 seconds and I advanced to the final and I fought a guy named Steven Graham, who was a great big guy, 290 pounder, like Tony. Tony was a 300 pounder. Uh, Steven Graham played football at, at one of the Carolina schools and was training with an old special forces soldier um, in, in some style that nobody had heard of. But again, great big physical guy. So he got in to that heavyweight tournament as well. I ended up fighting him in the final. Uh, took me about three minutes to kind of wear him down and get him in a bad position. And take uh, yeah. So I, I ended up winning the heavyweight tournament right out of the game. Okay. I want to know this. How much did you get paid for that? tournament? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got paid $20,000. For, for oh, surprisingly. Yeah. I thought you were going to say 500. <laughs> yeah, no, it was still, you know, the sport was still kind of exploding. A lot of people didn't understand it, but the pay-per-view numbers online at that time and with people's choice were still pretty good. So they were still paying a certainly, you know, I was making $25,000 a year as the assistant wrestling coach at Oregon state. So $20,000 salary in one fight. Wow. This is amazing. (laughs) Well, and what's amazing is, as you said, it happened in Augusta, Georgia. That was May 30th, 1997. But you find yourself now in a number one contender spot. You and Vitor Belfort are going to hook it up October 17th. And this time you're in Mississippi. This is where this sport is. It's an outlaw sport at this point. But Vitor is 19 years old. He is the, uh, the fan favorite, the betting favorite. You're a heavy underdog. And, uh, unbelievably now you've got a shot at the world championship. Would you have ever imagined this when you signed up for this? No, it was like a whirlwind. You know, my second show was that super fight against Vitor. They said the winner of that fight was going to get a shot at the title in Japan. And I'm like, you know, I'm not even thinking about it. I'm so focused on Vitor and trying to solve the problem that he was at that stage of his career. I mean, he was as as explosive an athlete as we had in the sport back then. So, uh, you know, I knew if if I could get my hands on him and make him wrestle me as much as possible, I, I was I had a good shot at wearing him down and beating him. Uh, but the problem was getting through those hands. He, he was blowing through everybody with that left, right, left, right, left, right, jab, co- jab, cross combination. Hands. A lot of guys standing in front of him and he was just blasting through them. You know, Tank Abbott, Trey Kelligman. There was, there was, I think, four guys there he just blasted through in under a minute. I think he had an aggregate time in all four of those first four fights of three minutes. Holy smoke. He was just blasting guys. And uh, that's who they wanted me to fight. And that was what started the rub and and the ultimatum, basically, that came from Oregon State and Coach Wells. Coach Wells wasn't too keen on the fighting. Right. And when they called me for that first fight, I had to go to him and say, hey, you know, they're asking me if I want to be in this show. You know, I need to get your permission to, to do some training and, and go do this. He said, well, I think it's bad for wrestling. I, I don't think it's uh, – you know, it's a crazy sport. I don't really want you to do it, but if you run it by the athletic director and he gives it his stamp of approval, you can do it. And so I went to Dutch Bachman at Oregon State to talk to him. I said, hey, this is the deal. 
he he loved it. He went crazy. He was like, really? Oh my God. If I was younger, I would do this. <laughs> and so obviously I got the stamp of approval, but, but coach Wells still wasn't really keen on it. So, you know, I won that first tournament that put me in the fight with Belfort that next fall. So I had to get some training in and learn about some boxing in a big hurry. And I was tra- training with Rico Chipperelli at that time with raw real American wrestling. And, uh, I knew I had to get a boxing coach or this kid was going to blast through me like he was everybody else. And so I needed to leave. This was August. So, you know, all the, all the athletes were coming back to Oregon state and I'm like, Hey coach, I need to go to California. I got this boxing coach lined up, you know, he's going to get me up to speed with some boxing and dealing with a Southpaw. If I don't go do this, this kid's going to knock my head off. And coach Wells was like, Hey man, we got our athletes coming back into town next week. What are you going to be? Are you going to be a fighter? Or are you going to be a coach? And he kind of forced me to make a decision. And I'm like, well, coach, they're paying me $25,000 for this one fight. You pay me $25,000 for the whole year. So, you know, this is a chance for me to be a professional athlete in our society, which I think is a pretty big deal. I think this sport is very good for wrestling. It elevates wrestling to a martial arts status it didn't have before. And so we had a little bit of a rub. Uh, you know, I had to make a decision and I said, well, I'm going to fight coach. So he kept me on as the, as an assistant strength coach for the rest of that season while he opened up the position as the assistant coach for a new guy. So I still trained at Oregon state that season, went down to California, got the boxing coach trained with Rico, you know, rolled in to the Belfort fight in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi in a tent on the side of the river. (laughs) <laughs> and uh you know the rest is history i think everybody thought i was going to get my butt whooped and, and it just didn't go that way i knew if i could get my hands on him i could make him work harder than he wanted to work and that's basically how it unfolded even my mom who thought i was crazy for doing this and i told her exactly what the game plan was and what we were going to do and it almost to the letter unfolded that way and she's like hmm maybe you weren't crazy I mean, I see why everybody thought that though, just to put this in context, Vitor was undefeated. You handed him his first loss. He beat the first guy in 12 seconds, the second guy in a minute and 17, the third guy in 43 seconds. And he beat tank Abbott, who a lot of people thought was just not someone who could be knocked out. And it took him a whole 52 seconds. And then here comes this guy who's fought exactly one night. And they think, (laughs) well, this, this shouldn't be. So he has a huge betting favorite and you get the job done. It's unbelievable when you think about it. Yeah, I heard that Bob Meyerowitz, who was the president of the company at that time, was literally jumping up and down in the sound trailer as I knocked Vitor down and came down on top of him to finish that fight. That was their phenom. That was their poster boy, brought in all the Brazilian crowd and and all that. And he was very, very marketable. He was a very explosive, good-looking young kid that was just tearing everybody up. I put a little Greco on him. He didn't go very far. <laughs> Put a little Greco on him. Instruments. Out for him. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Randy, it took you 21 minutes against Maurice Smith, but on December 21st, just seven months after debuting in the UFC, you become the heavyweight champion. Your rookie year in MMA was a lot like mine in WWF, but I want to ask you, how big a deal was it to become the champion? It was a, it was a surreal experience. Um, you know, my fourth fight in my third show, my fourth fight 
and I'm fighting for the world championship, I'm like, what the hell just happened? I mean, it was so amazingly fast. I mean, literally from May to December, and now I'm fighting for the world championship. I mean, it was crazy. 20,000 people in an arena in, in Yokohama, Japan. You could hear a pin drop in there. They're so quiet. It was unnerving. Unfortunately, I could hear my wife over the entire stadium screaming, but she was the only one screaming. <laughs> it, it was a surreal experience. I knew I had my hands full with Mo. Maurice Smith was a very, very tough kickboxer and competitor. We saw him dismantle Mark Coleman to win the title. Uh, so he definitely, I, I'd never had anybody kick me. Uh, you know, so I had to, I knew he was going to try to kick me and stay out at that kicking range and, and really frustrate me and make it hard for me to get my hands on him. So I, I keyed on and trained on every time he picked his foot up, I was going to change levels and penetrate. And sure enough, the, the first time he kicked me, I changed levels, penetrated, got to him, put him on the ground. And back then it was a 15 minute, 15 minute straight round. Okay. And then if you didn't settle it, there were two, three minute overtime. So a total of 21 minutes. And, uh, we didn't settle it in the first 15, but he spent the entire 15 on his back. He could not get up, <laughs> you know, from underneath of me. Um, that was, I wore long biker short, you know, bike tights. Yeah. Cause I, I knew he was going to try to kick me in my legs and I didn't want the judges to be able to see any bruises sure. or anything and send that message to him. Like, Oh, look at the damage. Yeah. And, and so I wore these long, you know, lycra tights and uh that allowed him to lock down on my legs in this half guard that he used oh. that he learned from kosaka so there was like i was literally a little, little backfire on you yeah i wasn't getting out of there whether i if i wanted to but he wasn't getting up either so and i was in the top position you know landing elbows and landed punches for for the entire 15 minutes so uh you know i think it it worked it worked against both of us that I was wearing those tights, but you know, at the end of the day, I won the fight and, and there I was standing there with it, with a, you know, a belt, a world championship belt. It was just so weird. <laughs> well, seven months. It only took you seven months. You started a career and you became the world champion in seven months. <laughs> yeah. It was insane. It was really crazy. But what's crazy though, is it didn't work out from there. I think as the story goes, you had some sort of an impasse with the UFC, even though you just won their title, you're not going to be sticking around. What happened? Well, um, in order to get that title fight, we had to negotiate a new contract and it was a three fight deal. Uh, the, the title fight was the first of those fights. Um, it took us, I think three weeks of back and forth negotiating the terms of that contract with Lou Ciparelli and Rico Ciparelli. We got a, a deal. I'm the champ. I win. Now they want me to fight Mark Coleman to defend the title, uh, which I'm okay with. But at the same time, this is the time that Senator McCain is stepping up, bashing the sport, trying to get it banned, eventually got it thrown off people's choice off the pay-per-view carrier. Uh, the sport was you know, not making the pay-per-view buys and making the money. So although they were supposed to pay me a certain amount that we had negotiated for that first fight after the championship, they came back with less than a third of that amount. Said, oh, we want you to fight and defend the title, but we can only pay you this. And I'm like, 
what are you talking about? We have a contract right here in black and white. We spent three weeks negotiating. You got to pay me this. I'm ready to fight. Happy to fight Mark, but not for this money. Yeah. We, we, we agreed on terms for this. So we, we said, Hey, when you want to pay me the money, I'm ready to fight. They said, Oh, you're choosing not to defend your title. We're going to strip you. And we're going to hold a, a four man tournament to determine who the new heavyweight champion is. That's what brought Kosaka in, Boss Rutten in, Kevin Randleman in, and Pedro Hizo. Those guys, those four guys all fought in that four man tournament to determine who was going to fill the vacant title that they just took away from me. I went back to wrestling. I was out for about a year, still training in MMA. I, I fought in Shuto uh, in Japan twice during that space, but I was focused on using the money I'd made from the first couple of fights I'd had to really knuckle down and try and make that 2000 Olympic team in Greco. Now that didn't work out. I ended up in the final trial, the final match against Garrett Lowney. Garrett was a new young kid, junior world champion, making his way into the senior ranks. He ended up beating me in that match three to one, goes on and wins the bronze medal in Sydney in that weight class. Um, and I retired. I decided that it was time to hang up the wrestling boots and go back and just focus on MMA and, and, and really devote all my time to MMA instead of juggling both balls, juggling the wrestling and the fighting. Wow. Um, you spent a bunch of time in Japan with rings. What was the difference between what was going on in American MMA and Japanese MMA at the time, Rick? Well, there's a very close parallel between pro wrestling and MMA in the Japanese market. You had guys like Anoki who came from that pro wrestling background, the Shuto guys, uh, they, they were developing the, you know, and they were using a ring instead of a cage. Uh, the, the, back then, like Pancrase, you could do rope escapes. You could punch and kick. Sometimes it was open hand. Shuto, a lot of the rules were, were open palm strikes uh, instead of closed fists. On the ground, when you were standing, you could use your closed fists and, and punch and kick. Uh, just different rules of engagement and a, kind of a different form of the same sport but it was a little more akin to pro wrestling. They liked, you know, the costumes they liked, right. they would put on some works. They would do. Was some it more work. of a work shoot, Randy? Was it part work, part shoot, or was it there, all there were some works? I, I saw some fights that I would swear were works. Now, obviously that wasn't common knowledge, but, but, you know, again, I think that was a little more acceptable in the Japanese market. Oh, yeah. That was not going to fly in the U S market. Oh no. Yeah. If they smell the work or they thought it, guys weren't fighting as hard as they should be fighting they would say oh this is a work it's not a real fight and they would get disgusted they, they were irritated with that whole thing so there was definitely a difference between the japanese market and what was going on there and what was going on in the u.s so you take a break uh, from mma to focus again on your amateur wrestling career why did you think you needed to make that move in 2000 to to maybe go back into that uh, it's just a goal that I hadn't achieved. I'd set out to be an uh, Olympian and, and to win a medal at the Olympics. I was getting up there in age. Uh, guys, young guys like Garrett Lowney were, were coming onto the scene and doing very, very well, both nationally and internationally. Um, at some point, push comes to shove. You got you to gotta make a decision. That was going to be my last opportunity, my last quadrennium, if you will, to, to chase finally achieving making that Olympic team and standing on that podium, which is a big deal. Um, 
you know, and, and Kurt can attest to that. What a big part of his life that was. And, and it was a big part of my life too. It's just one of those goals I never accomplished. Yeah. I was able to put closure to that because I did win the gold medal and you know, mm-hmm. that's what I set out to do. So I completely understand Randy. I would have done the same thing as you. And uh, I'm not saying I, I would have accomplished everything you accomplished, but I would have probably done the same thing as you. I would have continued to keep trying. Yeah. I, I just, it's one of those things you just can't let go of. Not certainly not easily. Yeah. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks and a few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end, when people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home. Okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up. You lose your license. You lose your job. You total your car. You kill someone. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again, play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over paid for by NHTSA. Well, you return to rings and go two and oh, before the UFC comes back to you and offers you a shot at the heavyweight title. Mm-hmm. How did you get past what happened previously in the UFC? And why did you want to return? Well, um, like I said, that all happened in 2000. I, I hung up my boots in Dallas at, at those final trials. Uh, so now what, you know, now I can go back to just pursuing being a professional athlete and a fighter. Uh, they were having some trouble handling Kevin Randleman at that time. You know, Kevin was a pretty boisterous personality, basically talented guy, but a a pretty boisterous person for sure. And he was giving them some trouble. He was, you know, they, they were, uh, let's just say they weren't very happy with the way things were going with Kevin. They reached out to me after, yeah, after our disagreement over the contract, they offered me a, a contract and a shot at the, at the heavyweight championship. So I don't know anybody who's not going to jump on that opportunity yeah. to go from literally being on the outs, you know, with the company and, and then the company reaching out and saying, Hey, we, we'd really like you to, to come back and fight, you know, fight for the heavyweight title. I said, okay, I'm, I'm happy to come back and fight for the title against Kevin, but I've already done the first leg of this tournament with rings the finals are in february you have to allow me to to follow through and finish that tournament and go to the finals they agreed to that they said okay no problem you can go go finish the tournament in february in japan but we want you to fight in october uh against kevin roundman in in atlantic city uh at boardwalk hall and and i said okay get her done and I knew that was going to be a tough fight. I knew every any time I faced another guy with the wrestling credentials that, that Kevin had, it was going to be a tougher fight. I relied heavily on my wrestling background and experience to put guys that didn't have that experience in bad places and bad positions and wear them out. That was going to be very difficult against a guy like Kevin. He was as, as explosive and talented as any guy that, that One we've of the best athletes I've ever seen wrestle. Yeah, absolutely. So. I knew it had the potential to be a dangerous fight and a tough fight, but I'd been spending a lot of my time working on jujitsu and learning how to 
wrestle off my back and, and, you know, for fear that some point I'm going to run into somebody that can take me down. And uh, sure enough, first and second round, Kevin took me down. uh, But I had done enough and spent enough time there. I almost arm barred him. I was able to protect myself and, and not sustain any damage. And then in the third round, I took Kevin down. Kevin did the dying cockroach. The, the feet and arms went straight up in the air. I, I climbed right to Mount and, and from Mount was able to finish the fight. So there was a disparaging difference in the homework and time I'd spent kind of learning all this other stuff. And it was apparent that Kevin you know, hadn't really been spending any time learning any of these other skills. He was who he was. Yes. Yeah, that, that was definitely Kevin. Yes. Well, as you said, uh, you're going to get the, the win with the TKO finish. And now you're the first two-time heavyweight champion in the UFC. And considering that you had sort of upset UFC plans once before, when you finished Vitor Belfort, their poster boy, this has got to feel good after that contract dispute to come back and win the thing again. Is this like a crowning achievement? Is this like uh, Hey, let's stick it up there. Keister sort of deal. I showed you type of thing. <laughs> well, I didn't really have that attitude about it, but I definitely, you know, after finally giving up on the Olympic aspirations and retiring, uh, early that summer was now able to just dedicate and focus hundred percent on, on going out and being a world champion. When I rolled into that title fight with Mo Smith, I, I had never set out to be a world champion. It was just this new sport that I saw other wrestlers doing that I wanted to try. And lo and behold, in seven months, I'm fighting for a world championship. It just kind of happened. So it was a little overwhelming. It was like, man, what the heck just happened? Now I'm very focused to set the goal to look, no, I'm going to win that title back. So certainly a sense of accomplishment to get back in, get it, get another title shot to beat a guy as formidable as, as Kevin, uh, to win the title. So definitely felt like I had achieved the goal and something I set out to achieve. Well, the UFC has a lot of upheaval at this point due for buying them out before the next time you do a UFC show. So in the meantime, you return to Japan and rings. When do you meet with the Faridas and Dana White to hear what they have planned for the UFC? Yeah, that's an interesting story because that December, um, after I beat Kevin, I was in Japan. I was cornering Dan Henderson and Matt Lindland. was over there for a few weeks right before Christmas. I was looking for new management. I, I'd, I'd walked away from Rico and Lou. Um, th- there was a lot of headbutting going on between them as to who was running the show and me and Danny decided it was time to move on and get some, some other representation. Um, I signed with a, a group called battle management, which was Jeremy Lappin and Peter Levin. But I had also talked to Dana white because at that time, Dana white was representing Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz as their manager. I had sat down with him while I was in Japan, talked to him about representing me as well as a potential, you know, manager. I'd also met with, Jeremy and Peter Levin with battle management. I hadn't made a decision yet. And then Dana called me after we met and he said, look, I, I, there's big things happening. You're going to like what's going on, but I'm not going to be able to manage you. And I said, Oh, that's, you know, I appreciate you calling me, but I'd, I'd already kind of signed with these other guys. Um, but thanks. And I'll be watching out to see what's coming down the pike. And sure enough, that February, the Fertitas and Dana White bought the company from Bob Meyerowitz and SEG. Now, right away, they, 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 you know, they took a bunch of their top guys and they started this ad campaign with Carmen Electra, 
kind of trying to mainstream the sport, change the image of the sport, make it a legitimate sporting event, not this kind of sideshow or freak show that it had become. And uh, they ran towards regulation, towards unified rules. That previous year uh, with SEG at the helm, uh, Larry Hazard out of New Jersey at the Athletic Commission in New Jersey developed unified rules that they started promoting to all the boxing commissions across the country. So, you know, it was, again, a bit of a wild, wild west. There were underground shows and, and stuff going on everywhere, but the rules of engagement were different depending on where you went. Even what was going on in Pride in, in Japan at that time or Shuto and, and Pancrase in Japan at that time, each one of those organizations had different rules and different rules of engagement. And these unified rules kind of leveled the playing field. Everybody was kind of made it a legitimate sport. These are the rules. This is what we do. Um, and then they kept tweaking that every time there was a show, it seemed the rules would change just a little bit, but uh, the Fertitas had the savvy and the pocketbook to really revamp the sport and, and push it out into the mainstream as a legitimate sport instead of this pay-per-view freak show that it had been up to that point. And they deserve credit for that. They definitely had some vision. Did they ever lay out that vision to you as one of their cornerstone guys of, Hey, here's what we're trying to do. Would you have ever envisioned that it would become as big as it did? Um, I think we were all hopeful. We were all worried that it was going to die. Certainly with, with SEG running it, it was, I think it was dwindling. It was on its way to, to, to suffering and maybe going away. And I think because of the Lorenzo Fertitta, especially, but the Fertitas and Dana White, they, they had the connections and the savvy to kind of revamp the sport, run towards regulation, you know, embrace the unified rules, create rounds and a 10 point must scoring system that those are all things from boxing and combative sports that we understand in the American market. So I think all of those things helped the sport start to gain momentum, but even then it was still struggling. They had spent about $40 million doing all that remarketing and all that. And they still weren't getting back the money in the pay-per-views and stuff. They weren't making uh, any money yet, huh? So they came up with the idea and, and kind of the last ditch effort to do the ultimate fighter. This was in 2004. Oh. They come up with this format. The only one that would put it on TV was spike. And of course, everyone knows the story from there. The UFC got their big break with the ultimate fighter and went really mainstream and the sport just exploded. Uh, but let's go back and talk about, you know, when Zufa first took over and now you're thinking about coming back in. So yeah, they, they, they bought the company. Uh, they had signed Pedro Hizza to a nine fight deal. The biggest deal anybody had gotten in the sport at that point. And I was an old, you know, I was pushing, uh, push, you know, heading, heading towards 40 and their heavyweight champion when they bought the company. So I don't think they thought I was very marketable as an older champion. Uh, they wanted this young Brazilian kid. He was a big stud, great kickboxer. Uh, to, I think they expected him to beat me in that fight. And, uh, it didn't go out that way. I ended up winning three of the three of the five rounds and, and winning a unanimous decision, which I think kind of monkey wrenched their plans for that for that big young stud Pedro Hizzo. Uh, they signed him to a nine fight deal. That was the first of nine of his fights, and then he didn't win. He didn't win the title. So um, I was due to renegotiate my contract, and they said, "Okay, we'll we'll renegotiate with you, but you have to give him an automatic rematch." I'm like, well, he kicked the dog snot out of my lead leg. I don't really want to do that. But if that's what we got to do, that's what we do. So 
I went ahead and signed the new contract, agreed to the automatic rematch and went to Seattle and started training with Mo Smith, the guy I fought for my first title fight, the great kickboxer that he was. He helped me change my stance, figure out how to check kicks, how to throw kicks, really adjusted and tweaked a lot of things in my style. I was still walking out there in a wrestler stand, 60% of my weight on my front leg and the other 40% on my back leg that we as wrestlers use as a rudder to kind of change directions and penetrate to, to take guys down. In, in fighting and kickboxing, it's the opposite. You put about 60% of your weight on your back leg so that you can raise that front leg up and deflect kicks off of your shin instead of taking it to the meat of your thighs. Um, that was something I had not learned in, in until I started training with Mo Smith and getting ready for that second Pedro Hizo fight. He kicked me 14 times in that first fight. My leg swelled up and turned black. I still have a dent in my thigh where some of that muscle just did. It said, the hell with you. We're not coming back. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So uh, the second fight was a completely different story. He never kicked me once. I kicked him a couple times. I took him down and ended up finishing him in the third round. He, he didn't even go the distance. So it really was a turning point for me. Technically, I learned a lot facing that adversity, facing that first fight, having to sign that contract and fight him again right away um, was, was a big, big. And that fight with Josh Barnett, you mentioned, that was a big turning point for me, too. Like I said, I'd been working a lot on my grappling and being on my back and doing all this jujitsu stuff. And in the heat of that fight, in the early on, we got into a scramble and I pulled guard and pulled Josh <laughs> Barnett on top of me. I went back and looked at that tape. I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? What were you thinking, Red? Nine times out of ten, there's no way that guy could take me down. Yeah. And I put myself on the bottom, which cost me the fight. I had to go back and, and really kind of reanalyze what my mindset was and why I, I put myself in that bad position. Um, and go back to wrestling, making guys wrestle me, not pulling guard, not playing this jiu-jitsu game. I was never going to catch up with those black belts in jiu-jitsu right. any more than they were going to catch up with me and, and our wrestling experience. There's no way. So I, I had to really kind of shift my thinking. That loss forced me to do that, really analyze what I was doing. And, and again, sometimes those losses are just as important as any fight you win because it forces you to analyze who you are, what you're doing makes you a better athlete and a better human being at the end of the day. Well, after Josh Barnett won, he won the fight. Um, he failed a drug test. And I wanted to ask you, how bad do you think steroids were in MMA at this point? Well, they started, they started testing in 2000. Obviously I started fighting in 1997. I knew there were guys that were, that were doing it. It was apparent, uh, but I never looked at it as, a, as an advantage for them. I felt like guys that were doing that were focused on the wrong thing. They were more focused on their beach muscles and how good they look walking up instead of their endurance, durability, and technique and tactics to win fights. So I always looked at it as an advantage. If I'm rolling in there against a guy that's been doing that or that I suspect has been doing that, I knew his head was in the wrong place and I would have a, a chance to really make him work, really make him tired, you know, push that cardiovascular system, force it to, to pump oxygen to all those muscles. Um, I just saw that as an advantage. They didn't really start testing with the athletic commissions until 2000. Obviously that's when Josh popped because they started testing. Um, 
you know, it was what it was. They tried to give me the title back. I said, no, you're not giving me the title back. In my opinion, I still lost that fight. Right. So you're not going to hand me the belt back. I'll fight for the belt, but you're not just going to give it back to me. And I ended up fighting Rico Rodriguez in the Mohegan Sun. I was winning that fight. He's a big, strong guy. Ended up taking me down in the in the fifth and final round and catching me with an elbow right in the eye socket and fractured my eye, uh, which absolutely exploded in my brain. I verbally tapped instantly. I knew something was seriously wrong. So very serious injury. Took me about six months to recover from that. That was the first time my mom called me. She, she was at that fight. She saw them put me into the ambulance and the whole thing, but she called me, you know, I couldn't fly home for a couple of days because of the, you know, everything that was going on. She called me after I'd gone in and had surgery on the orbit. She's like, Hey, you know, maybe it's time to think about doing something else. <laughs> time to retire. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm fine, mom. I'm going to be fine. I've got more to do. I'm, you know, and, and obviously recovered and went back to fighting, but, uh, it was definitely one of those times mom's, you know, worried about my well-being. Mother knows best. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever look at what Kurt was doing on WWE programming and think, well, maybe there's a way to make a bunch of money and, and keep my orbital bones where they belong. I mean, does that ever <laughs> even cross your mind? Well, I had no illusions that, that the job that Kurt was doing week in, week out, night after night was any easier than me going in that cage every couple months and getting potentially get punched or kicked in the head. The, the grinding grueling schedule that those guys in pro wrestling keep is no joke. Yeah. And I think Kurt can attest to that. Uh, you know, so, you know, I think because of our, my collegiate wrestling roots and then already being involved in MMA, uh, I, it never really appealed to me. It just didn't, I don't know any other way to say it. Well, after- Randy, you um, you were you were heavyweight champion. What m- made you make the move to light heavyweight champion? What reason for that? Well, I had lost that fight to Josh Barnett, and I had lost the fight to Rigo Rodriguez. Uh, I wasn't the heavyweight champion. I was a small heavyweight anyway, walking around at two twenty. Yeah. Um, I threw it out there. They had already scheduled me to fight my the last fight on my contract with Andre Arlovsky in the heavyweight division. I had thrown it out there to Joe Silva and company saying, Hey, I, you know, I can make two Oh five. If there's a chance or, or you're interested in me coming down and fighting a light heavyweight, I can make that pretty easily. Um, I was scheduled to fight Andre. Andre broke his hand three weeks before that fight. And the same time this is going on in, in the light heavyweight division, Chuck and, and Tito, Tito was the champ. Chuck was the number one contender for whatever reason, they couldn't make that fight happen. And, Chuck was pissed off. He wanted his shot. Tito was like, oh, we're friends. We always agreed we'd never fight. Um, So they were in the process of stripping Tito of his title. And they asked me if I, you know, since I wasn't going to fight Andre because of the broken hand, would I fight Chuck at light heavyweight for the interim championship while they kind of got Tito out of there and, and gave Chuck his shot? I said, yeah, I'll do that. Again, I think they expected my old ass was just going to get beat by Chuck Um, and Chuck would be the interim champ that would put more pressure on Tito to have to fight him to unify the belt and and the titles. Obviously, again, I was the monkey wrench. You're wrecking all the plans, Randy. (laughs) I beat Chuck and and now I'm the interim champ. 
and so they they said, hey, we want you to fight Tito right away. Re, you know, unify the, the the belts. And I said, okay, that sounds great. And so three months later, I ended up fighting uh, Tito to unify the interim championship and the and the championship belt. And and now I'm the light heavyweight champion. So uh, again, kind of on a whirlwind. And I was the fly in the ointment for for the company for sure. This episode is sponsored by Blue Chew. Say it with us. Blue Chew. Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom by offering chewable tablets that can help men get stronger and longer lasting erections. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets help men achieve harder, stronger erections to combat all forms of ED, erectile dysfunction. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problem here. That's exactly right, Kurt. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil tablets are chewable. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct so it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And here's a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code ANGLE at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's bluechew.com, promo code ANGLE to receive your first month free. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring the podcast. Oh, it's true. It's damn true. Well, when you defeated Tito, you even wind up spanking him literally in the fifth round. Uh, I mean, it, you're the first guy to hold the championship in two weight classes. You know, they had put all their chips in on Vitor and then Chuck and then Tito and one by one, you come clean them all out. Uh, but it feels like this is when the UFC really starts to level up into the mainstream. Uh, the ultimate fighter is going to launch on spike TV. The Fertitas are doubling down on their investment. And I don't think MMA was ever the same. And you're right in the center of all that. Is that maybe the most exciting time in your career? Well, it was certainly a, a, an amazing time in the career. And, and I think it was great to see the sport take a turn like that. Again, I think they were savvy enough to, to change the image, to run towards regulation. They were savvy enough and had the pocketbook again to get it on Spike TV when nobody would air our sport. And, and that changed the landscape for all of us. Now look at us. There's, three or four or five promotions. Obviously I'm working for the professional fighters league. Now there's Bellator. There's a ton of fight organizations out there besides the UFC. It's a great time to be a mixed martial artist and, and be able to be a professional fighter and a professional athlete. A lot of promotion but goes back to, to that, that ultimate fighter changing the landscape. People had a misconception about who we were. They thought we were criminals and that we're somehow we're crazy <laughs> because we get in a cage and fight, fight each other. And I think that reality genre vehicle gave everybody a bird's eye look at, at these athletes, their mindset, the intense training and what we put into this sport. And it changed a lot of people's perceptions of who we were. 
and why we do what we do. Well, you talked about you were the light heavyweight champion. This is a great question, Randy. What made you want to come back and fight Tim Sylvia at heavyweight? You know, Tim had come to, to the Team Quest. This was back in the Team Quest days when me and, and Dan Anderson and Matt Lindland and Robert Fallis opened that gym there. And Tim had come out. This is before he won the He's title. Seven foot tall, right? Six foot eight. Yes. He's very tall. Tall. Uh, he was an aspiring heavyweight. I was fighting at light heavyweight at this time. Uh, he came out to train with us to get some rounds in and, and spend some time wrestling and work with us. He stayed in my house. Helped me. I was in the middle of a remodel at the house. Literally helped me with the remodel. He was a great guy. I enjoyed spending time with him. But I tortured him in the training environment. <laughs> and, you, know, you had a metal he, edge over him, huh? He was still really green. And, and I, 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 you know, handled him pretty regularly in the training environment at that time. Now he went on in that next year to knock Rico Rodriguez out. I was standing next to Monty Cox in the dressing room. When that happened, we were both jumping up and down. We were so excited for him. He was just a wide open fighter. He went out there to, to win fights, to knock guys out. And uh, I liked him. You know, he, he didn't always come off as, as the most gracious guy. Uh, he just socially, you know, the camera would come on and he would say some silly things. So the fans were, were on him pretty hard. And it became, you know, the Andre Orlovsky, Tim Sylvia show for about three years there. They were back and forth and, and, and they knew each other so well. Those fights just weren't terribly exciting. And then Tim fought Jeff Munson. I commentated. One of my early commentating gigs was commentating that show up in Sacramento at Arco Arena. And it was like watching paint dry. It was a very slow fight. It was not very exciting. And, you know, I had been retired for about 13 months. I was going through a divorce. This was after the third Chuck fight and, and just not feeling like myself. So I stepped away from the sport, was focusing on the commentating, got back into some grappling. Um, and one of the guys that owned the car dealership, Joel Supernot, he kept texting me, you need to fight the giant. I know you beat the giant. That's what he called Tim. And he kept harassing me every, every other week. He'd send me another text. It happened to be his birthday. This was after that Sacramento fight. I was at dinner with him for his birthday. And he said, you need to fight the giant. And I'm like, man, take another shot of sake. What are you talking about? <laughs> but I got on my phone and I text Dana. I said, man, that fight was like watching paint dry. I could beat either one of those guys. And I was retired at the time. Dana called me. He didn't text me back. The phone rang. He called me. He said, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I, I beat either one of those guys. I'll fight him. I'll come out and fight him. Three weeks later, that fight was signed. Wow. Came that was fast. Yeah. Came out of retirement to fight Tim for the heavyweight championship in Columbus, Ohio. 22,000 people. I was the there, Randy. It was hot, man. You, you dominated the fight, too. It yeah, I'm glad I was that well, that's probably the closest I ever came to the one punch knockout that first blow, but I'm glad it didn't go down that way. Cause I think everybody was questioning me at, at over 40 years old. What was I doing fighting this giant guy? I think it was 43 going on 44. If I remember right, <laughs> uh, you know, I think, you know, everybody thought I was nuts for coming back out and fighting him at that, at my age. And he's so big. I mean, we look like mutton Jeff out there and, uh, I'm glad it went that way. I'm glad it went all five rounds and I, and I, you know, was able to, to stay in control of the entire fight rather than getting that 
one punch knockout and then saying, Oh, that was a fluke. You got lucky. Hey. From there, you're going to go ahead and have your, uh, defense against Gabe Gonzaga, but then you get to another contract impasse with the UFC, but this time it's with Zufa and, uh, things don't go swimmingly with you and Dana. And, uh, when you're on the outs, it looked like you were teasing a big fight with Fedor that never really happened. What was yeah. going on during this era and, and why didn't the Fedor fight ever happen? Well, um, I, I knew that, that Dana and company weren't, weren't being honest with me about a lot of things. Um, I kind of took them to task over that. Um, yeah, I, I was kind of on the outs with them from day one because I fought for my ancillary rights in my contract. I had that new management battle management that I mentioned earlier, and, and they educated me on what ancillary rights were and what was in this contract. And so we held their feet to the fire for the new contract. The one where they forced me to fight Pedro the, the second time we got our own ancillary rights. We, we had a favored nations clause. There were a bunch of things that, that we pushed and put into those, that, that contract, that version of that contract for me, which was great for me, but it shined a light on the loopholes in, in the contracts and, and the adversity of the, these contracts are really bad. They're, they're, they're pretty horrible contracts, honestly, as from a fighter's perspective, they're great for the company, but they're not so great for us. Right. So, I pushed that issue with my management, um, fought for those things. So I was kind of on the wrong foot with them right from the start. And then again, called them to, took them to task over some of the, the stuff they were, they were saying and doing, uh, back then, uh, after I beat Gonzaga and, uh, you know, that put me in a position to, I had to stand up for myself. Basically, uh, I resigned from the heavyweight championship and I walked away from, from the UFC I, the one fight I wanted was the Fedor fight. He, they, the most rankings had him rank one and me rank two. You want to be the best in the world. You got to fight the best in the world. So I told them, I want that fight. They were in negotiations with him. The negotiations broke down. They wanted M1 global kind of owned him and they wanted a co-promotion. The UFC and Zufa were not willing to do a co-promotion. So it wasn't going to happen. So I said, all right, I'm, I'm resigning as your heavyweight champion. I'm going to go find a way to make this fight happen. Uh, they filed injunctions. Uh, I would have had to, and they were basically trying to bleed me in money. I ended up spending about $500,000 of my own money um, with lawyers and whatnot to try and find a way to make that fight happen. And at some point, you know, I, I was 40, almost 45 years old. I needed to really look at what was going on. How much time did I have to continue to compete uh, as, as an athlete at that level? I didn't have time to spend a year fighting this thing in legal battles and spending money. So I just let it go. So, all right, well, if this fight never happens, it never happens. I'm going to come back and fight. That's what brought me back to the UFC and put me in, in the fight with Brock Lesnar. You know, uh, speaking of fighting, do you remember when Rico Ciparelli wanted us to uh, have a grappling match? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would have been, yeah. been interesting, huh, Randy? <laughs> yeah, it would have been fun. You know, we never got to compete. You were one of those prototype heavyweights that wasn't the giant, great, big heavyweight. You know, you, you obviously you wrestled at 220. So, so you weren't the great, big, giant heavyweights that, that we were. I actually used. weighed 208, Randy. Yeah, I, I wasn't were, very big. Yeah. Yeah. You were this new kind of prototype heavyweight that, that I think became uh, a lot of guys followed in your footstep and, and realized they could compete at heavyweight too. Um, I think it would have been fun if we, we would have had a chance to compete, but now we're just officially old bastards. So I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right, Randy. 
I'm curious. You were saying the fight you really wanted was Fedor, but you wind up coming out to fight Brock. What about Brock intrigued you as a matchup? Or did you just recognize this will do big business? This could be a big payday. Well, it didn't, it didn't intrigue me at all. That is a big man. (laughs) It intrigued the, the company. It intrigued the UFC. Zufa, they knew that Brock, having Brock come over, was going to bring all those WWE eyes to those fights. He, I think I was his third fight out, and he didn't fare very well uh, against you know Frank Mir in his first fight, but he got knee barred. He did a great job against Crazy Horse in his second fight, took him down, trapped him pretty well on a face-up crucifix and, and beat the crap out of him. He's a great big athletic guy, and I have respected his wrestling credentials. Obviously, an NCAA champion from Minnesota, uh, a, a huge man, and the very few guys that size move as well as that guy does. That's the truth. So I wasn't very, you know, I felt like I had a shot to beat him. I felt like I could use my Greco background, get in the clinch, make him work, put him up against the fence, and, and really make him work harder than he wanted to work and had a shot at beating him for sure. But I knew it wasn't going to be an easy task. Uh, and I think I was on my way to getting it done. I think if he hadn't grabbed the fence in that first round and stopped me from taking him down, it might've been a different night. He, uh, who knows how he would have reacted to being on his back and fighting from his back with me right. on top, punching him and elbowing him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you were talking about Brock. Did you respect him for his collegiate days or did you just look at him as another pro wrestler trying to make it an MMA? No, I absolutely respect it. How could I not respect him being an NCAA champion? You, as, you, you know as well as I do, that's a very, very small group of humans that have achieved NCAA championship you know, titles in, in our society. And that's our style of wrestling, right. something I immersed myself in from the time I was 10 years old. So I had a lot of respect for him and what he accomplished and the athlete that he was or is. Um so yeah, it's not something I, I took lightly at all. I didn't look at him as just a big pro wrestler. <laughs> well, as everybody knows, Brock got the win and became the heavyweight champion that night. How good was Brock? Uh, what do you think he could have did in MMA if diverticulitis hadn't have derailed some of that? Well, I think he was on his way, uh, to, to be being very, very dominant in that weight class. I don't think he'd made friends with getting punched in the face yet. Yeah, That's my opinion. And I think when he faced Velasquez, and Alistair Overeem, uh, that was that became very apparent. He had not made friends with the fact that hey, you're in, you're in a fight, you're going to get punched in the face. That better trip your trigger and, and get you in the fight, not get you to shy away from the fight. Uh, I just don't think he had made friends with that yet. So although he's a great big physical guy, he had a ton of potential. I don't think he ever really achieved that. He created his own little fiefdom there in Alexandria with his gym. Now that's more big guys than I've seen on one mat anywhere but it was his gym you were there by invitation only none of those guys wanted to buck the system or or make waves and and frankly be honest with him and help him improve i trained there for a couple weeks i was you know i I wasn't worried about any of that so i you know i was happy to go toe to toe and 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 really push it in the training environment where i I felt like a lot of those guys didn't do that And, and consequently if you're the big fish in the pond, you're not getting any better. Now, Marty Morgan, I had a lot of respect for him. Marty was handling his training. Great boxing guy. Great boxers come from that family. And his wrestling pedigree in, in Minnesota and nationally and internationally goes very, very deep with all the Morgan brothers. So I had a lot of respect for Marty. I knew that Marty was going to have him in shape and, and have him 
prepared technically the best that he could. Well, you don't end up holding another title in MMA, but you end up defeating Mark Coleman in the first battle of UFC Hall of Famers. And then you defeated boxer James Tony. Did you feel Tony was in way over his head? Yeah, I believe he was. I, I, he had four months. He's an amazing boxer. Don't get me wrong. And again, you have to take that seriously. If you stand around in front of a guy like that, he will knock your head off. Uh, so I took that very, very seriously. But the real question was how much MMA and wrestling and grappling was he going to be able to learn in four months going into that fight? A lot. You're right. The biggest issue for him was getting his weight down because he was pretty significantly overweight when we signed that fight. I think he lost 40 pounds in camp getting ready for the fight. But how much of that was spent learning MMA, learning grappling, learning, you know, any of that. As soon as I hit that low single and he went down, his legs went straight. He allowed me to climb right to mount. He didn't protect himself on the ground. Um, It was very apparent that he hadn't done any homework. He hadn't learned anything else. Well, these days there's lots of, uh, I don't know, spectacle fights. We saw Conor McGregor, an MMA guy taking on Floyd Mayweather. And not too long from now, we're going to see Vito Belfort and Oscar de la Hoya. We know that boxers can't come into MMA, but what do you think about these MMA guys going into boxing? Is that something that even remotely interests you in one of these spectacle pay-per-views that people are doing these days? Well, I appreciate that those guys are getting boxing money Yeah, they're getting paid right, boxing right. money. I think that's the biggest thing I see in this is that they're shining a flashlight on the disparaging difference between the pay that MMA fighters get and the pay that boxers get. And that's all due to the federal legislation, the Muhammad Ali Act that was passed in 1996 to protect boxers from promoters like Don King and create transparency in that sport. We've been pushing to get that amended to include all combative sports athletes and give us that same luxury, that same transparency so that it levels the playing field and we can negotiate our fair value in the marketplace. So, you know, the Conor McGregor had the opportunity to really hold their feet to the fire and show that he chose not to. He chose to bring Dana White and company in and let them participate in his boxing match with Floyd. I think this Logan Paul, you know, and Jake Paul certainly know how to talk the game for YouTube sensations. But again, they're poking Dana White and they're, they're making more money than any MMA fighters who, who've been spending their career doing this Crazy. in these matches. You know, I hope Tyron Woodley, I know he's done the diligence and done the work. I, I hope he has a success this coming weekend with Jake Paul, you know, Belfort was always a great striker. So why not try his hand at boxing and get paid boxing money? We saw Anderson Silva do it recently. Another MMA star who has a great striking background. Interesting that Jake Paul and Logan Paul keep picking guys with strong wrestling backgrounds (laughs) and not strong striking backgrounds. So, uh, you know, but you have to admit the Pauls aren't too bad at boxers. They're they're hard workers. You know, you can see that they're, you know, they're still pretty green as, as boxers go, but they're hard workers. They're putting in the work and, and they're having fun doing it. It's hard to knock them for that. I'm not a big fan of all the smack talk and all the other stuff. Never have been, but you know, that is what it is. Speaking of smack talk at any point in your career, did you ever have any talks with any professional wrestling companies? I never did. They never approached me. Uh, Yeah. It just never happened. Um, I don't know, but it just never did. You finish up your MMA career in front of 55,000 fans in Toronto. It's a loss to uh, Leota Machida 
uh, 47 years old, you're going to hang it up. Was it the fight game itself, your age and conditioning, or just, just get the acting bug. Cause you did some pretty big stuff after that. Uh, well, I was definitely interested in focusing on all, all the other things I, I had in my life that were going so well. I uh, also had, you know, from years of wrestling and then fighting the discs in the neck, uh, were degenerated and, and, and starting to give me some troubles. I didn't want to grind out another camp and then end up having to have a neck surgery. Uh, I thought it was better for me to just go out on top, go out uh, on my own accord, not have some promoter or doctor telling me that I shouldn't do this anymore. Yeah. I wanted to go out on my own terms. And I think that's a rare thing in, in our society today for, for athletes. So that was my motive. It took me a while to come to terms with that decision. It was during the, the James Tony camp that every old injury I'd ever had flared up for no particular reason. And it was the first time that little voice in my head started chirping and saying, Hey, maybe that's your body telling you, you need to do something else. And so I had to really take that seriously. I think once you're starting to have that conversation in your own head, it might be time to think about doing right. something. Right. Well, you had done films and TV shows and obviously your biggest was the expendables. Mm-hmm. You did three of those films. How was it working with some of the biggest action stars in the world? And did any of them try you out? <laughs> it was uh, surreal for sure to be on set with all those guys, all those guys I grew up watching on, on the big screen. Uh, a pinch me moment, most definitely. Uh, none of those guys wanted to spar with me. I did a little sparring w- with uh, Dolph Lundgren. You know, he has a Kyokushin karate background, I... a lot of real sparring. He's a great big guy at six foot three. Uh, I did a little bit of sparring working out for some of the promotions after Expendables 1 with him, and we had a lot of fun doing it. Um, but never really got into serious sparring or serious you know, fighting or competing with any of those guys. They were all amazing guys, a great group of guys to be around. We're getting ready to leave here October 1st for Expendables 4 to start filming the fourth one. Uh, so, another one. Good for yeah. you. Well, Mr. Couture, we can't thank you enough for the time today. We're so excited to have you here on the Kurt Angle Show I want to remind everybody they can catch you as part of the PFL and you guys have the big world championship fight coming up October 27th. That's a Wednesday tickets are on sale. Now you can pick it up at ticketmaster.com or just check out pflmma.com to see everything going on with the professional fighters league. Don't forget. You can also watch the shows on ESPN. So let's support what Mr. Couture is doing. And, uh, I, for one, can't wait to see what's next. And then obviously we already talked about Expendables 4, getting ready to, to start filming that. So that's what's going on in my world right now. Well, good for you, Randy. Good luck with everything, my friend, and keep in touch. Thanks, brother. Great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for, for everything. Thanks, Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Be welcome. So how about that, Kurt? Well, an MMA legend here. I mean, UFC Hall of Famer, multiple-time champion, and still doing his thing now. Uh, with the uh, PFL, I, I got to check that out. I have to admit it's kind of not been on my radar, but now that I understand it's less about spectacle, more about sport, I'm into it. I'm going to check it out. Yeah. I think that's really cool that they're doing that. And, and you know what? Randy was a great interview today. He is so articulate very well with his words. Uh, he tells great stories. I really enjoyed it. If you haven't already go follow Randy on Twitter, you can find him anywhere. You enjoy social media. He's got all the different platforms. It's Randy underscore Couture. Uh, greatly appreciate the opportunity to talk with him today. Hope you guys will throw him a follow. And it is kind of fun to think about what if, you know, what if he had, uh, crossed paths with you in a wrestling ring or what if you got into MMA and we got to see Kurt angle, Randy Couture inside a cage 
it's fun to think about what if. It is a lot of fun. I think Randy and I are very much the same. We had great, incredible work ethic, and we were strategists. We would figure out how to win. We wouldn't just go out there and, and throw your talents out on the mat or in the octagon. Uh, we go out there and we would we would have a game plan in mind. And uh, I know a lot of fighters don't do that these days. They just want to go out there and throw. But uh, Randy's a strategist. That's what makes him so successful. Well, and for you guys, a lot of it comes down to training and a lot of that comes down to diet. So you need to go to physicallyfit.com. And when you get there, click on where to buy. You're going to find out what everybody else already knows. Protein bites are the way to go. And chicken snacks is your hookup. Uh, you can see Kurt waving them around at you right there. You got all kinds of different flavors and you don't just have, you know, the regular chicken snacks. You've also got organic plant protein. There's something for everybody and a whole host of flavors, right? Kurt. Yeah, it's 11 different flavors. We have chicken snacks and we have snack smart organic plant protein bites. Um, amazing taste. These flavors, I, we have sour cream and onion, sweet barbecue, sriracha, a cinnamon swirl. We have a lot of great flavors. You're going to absolutely love them. Go to physicallyfit.com to order them and uh, we'll send you your order, uh, whatever you want. Check it out. It's pizza. It's jalapeno ranch. You've also got sweet barbecue. Sriracha, as you mentioned, Kung Pao, Kurt's favorite, and maybe the healthiest of all Buffalo wing and blue cheese, but boy, the ladies and the kids, they absolutely love cinnamon swirl, whatever you're looking for. They got it at physicallyfit.com. Uh, and when you use the promo code angle pod, you get 20% off your whole order, right? Kurt. Yes. You get 20% off whatever order you is, no matter how much you order 20% off if you use the code AnglePod. So check it out. And by the way, KurtAnglebrand.com is on absolute fire. They got cowboy hats. They got milk cartons. They've even got birthday cards. The ultimate gift for the wrestling fan in your life, a birthday card from Kurt Angle. It's all at KurtAnglebrand.com. Uh, you can even get cameos, t-shirts, everything you're looking for. Kurt Angle related is at KurtAnglebrand.com. But maybe my favorite thing that you do, Kurt You'll let people send you stuff to autograph. All the information is at KurtAnglebrand.com. But maybe you met Kurt at an appearance years ago and you got your picture. How cool would it be to have Kurt sign that? Or maybe you've got one of your old favorite title belts, a replica that maybe Kurt won. He'll autograph that to you too. It's all happening at KurtAnglebrand.com, including cameos. So check it out. That's KurtAnglebrand.com. And next week, man, we're going to talk about you leaving the WWE. I'm kind of excited to tell that story. I don't think we've really talked about it in long form before. So next week should be a blast. I haven't talked about it that much. This will be the first revealing of my true story of how I left the WWE. So check it out. Set your DVR, set your recorder, set your calendar, set an alarm, tell your friends. It's the Kurt Angle show every single Sunday, right here on Cumulus Podcasts. We greatly appreciate you guys support. Follow us on Twitter. Uh, and also too, don't forget, you can see these shows. That's right. See these shows and hear them early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. You can even get Kurt to endorse your product over at advertisewithconrad.com. We're looking to give you what you're looking for. And you're going to get more Kurt angle right here next week on the Kurt angle show. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks and a few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end, when people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home. Okay. It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up. You lose your license. You lose your job. You total your car. 
you kill someone. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again, play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Paid for by NHTSA. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.